Hello, America. If you're looking for a roadmap to financial health and smart investing, remember, money meets at the intersection of Mulholland and Cooperstock. After your family and your health, your money, your investments should be number three on your life top 10 list. I am Mark Cooperstock, and along with my partner, Stephen Mulholland, a CFA charter holder and CFP, are the principals of Mulholland and Cooperstock Asset Management. Our firm is a registered investment advisor with offices in San Diego and Summerlin, Nevada, with only one goal in mind, to provide meaningful, thoughtful, and tax-efficient advice. We provide investment and generational wealth management while keeping a sharp eye on the economy and the markets. So come along, join us on this journey as we look to help you navigate the superhighway of financial news and global markets amidst the daily traffic of forecasts, speculators, and prognostications. You have arrived. Remember, money meets at the intersection of Mulholland and Cooperstock. Stephen, where will we go today? Hi, Mark. Thank you for the wonderful intro, as always. You know, this is the first podcast we are recording from our San Diego new headquarters with you in Las Vegas. It's, it's a milestone. It is. It is. And uh, so today we have a special topic and a special guest. Uh, we are going to be talking about real estate investment trusts or REITs, which trade just like stocks. They are companies that own, operate, or finance income generating real estate. They are required to pay out 90% or more of their taxable income in the form of dividends. And if you own an S&P 500 index fund, you own REITs. They were added to the benchmark in 2016. Today, there are 20, 29 REITs in the S&P 500 that comprise 3% of the index. When most people hear real estate, Mark, they think homes, office buildings, and strip malls. And that is certainly a big part of the REIT universe. But there is also a large and important cohort of non-traditional REITs, which include cell phone towers, data centers, storage centers, as just a few examples. In fact, these alternative parts of the real estate universe have been the best performers. Over the past 15 years, real estate public equities, or REITs, as an asset class, underperformed the S&P 500 over every time period. Uh, consider that over the last 15 years, REITs returned 7.5% as compared to the S&P's 10.9% an underperformance of about three and a half percent. And if you look over three years, five years, and 10 years, it's the same story with REITs underperforming the S&P 500. Uh, Mark, are you from familiar with the Mendoza line? I certainly am. Uh, Mario Mendoza was a shortstop for the Pittsburgh Pirates, I think in the 1970s. And he was a great fielder, but he couldn't hit worth a lick. I think his lifetime batting average was like 198 or 200. Um, yeah, a, a really weak hitter. And I think the Mendoza line was kind of established as a bare minimum as to how a batter could hit in order to kind of stay in the big leagues. Is that right? That, 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 is, uh, that is perfect. That is exactly right. So the Mendoza line for REITs has been multifamily apartment real estate, which performed exactly in line with the overall REIT benchmark. Uh, so uh, great memory, by the way, Mark, although um, I guess I guess it's a bit of a cheat. I, I, when I was uh, setting up the notes for the podcast, I didn't realize he was a Pittsburgh pirate, your hometown. 
Yeah, that's right. And uh, I grew up outside of Pittsburgh. I, I guess baseball and investing have similar traits. Defense first, offense second. <laughs> yeah, no, it's um, – I remember um, – so Warren Buffett once said, you, you can't be good at money management and especially communication about money management if you uh, didn't like baseball. So I, I guess uh, an, a, another valid point, Mr. Buffett. Um, the, so Mark, turning back to REITs, the real star outperformers of the group were all non-traditional REITs. Uh, cell towers as a group returned 16%, data centers 15%, and storage uh, centers uh, also 15%. So if you recall, the overall read index over the last 15 years, 7.5%, the S&P, 10.9%, cell towers, data centers, and storage centers all outperformed the S&P by about 4% per year. And when I was at the James Irvine Foundation, uh, I had a good seat to see uh, thousands of hedge funds, and I saw cell towers, and I saw storage centers and a lot of the best performing hedge funds. Uh, but there's a category that I never saw, which is the topic of our converse, conversation today, which is manufactured housing communities or MHC. To dive deeper into manufactured housing, we are thrilled to have today's guest with us, TK France. Hey, hey TK. Steven, thank you so much, Mark. Great to be here with you guys. Excited to be in your brand new offices down here in glorious San Diego. It's great to have you, TK. Thank you're you. the uh, you're the inaugural podcast from the new New World HQ. Well, I feel a lot of pressure now. <laughs> <laughs> TK, j- just just for your visit today, we've uh, we've ordered the uh, or reserved the Blue Angels to do a flyby uh, uh, above the office. So hopefully that'll come through in the recording. I felt like I had the military escort. I saw the choppers going over the big Hueys, the S-16s flying around. It's, um, it's a- <laughs> TK, please, please tell us a little bit about your background generally and then why you are qualified to talk about uh, manufactured housing, our topic of the day. All right, well, I'll take the latter first. I'm not sure why I'm qualified. You guys just asked me to be in the phone call, right, on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm ha- 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 happy to go into that. So, um, you know, real quickly, if we can kind of cut to the chase, um, I was formerly a uh, real estate investment banker on Wall Street with Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. Um, had the luxury of pleasure, you know, since then. I um, started my own uh, boutique real estate investment banking firm and have been either the lead or part of real estate teams that have raised in excess of $2 billion worth of equity uh, over the last 13 years uh, for commercial real estate. Um, You know, if we talk about uh, a topic of today, manufactured housing communities, um, I've been very active in that space um, from the investment banking side for the last, uh, call it five years or so. Okay, perfect. And then um, TK, what, your story of, um, and for compliance reasons on the podcast, we're going to have to be a little bit, uh, we can't be as specific as we'd like uh, to talk about your involvement in manufactured housing uh, because the fund you're affiliated with uh, is only for accredited investors and all, all that legalese. But more than the current opportunity you're involved with in manufactured housing, I found your story. Uh, and because you've dealt with all aspects of real estate, uh, I found your story about why you identified and chose manufactured housing to create an opportunity uh, really compelling. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, about that process and what you discovered? Yeah, absolutely. 
Uh, I would love to. So w when I left Wall Street back in 2009, which was a fun period to, uh, to live through as a real estate investment banker, um, what I wanted to do, the, the, the goal was to one, one of the main lines of business I wanted to focus on was establishing, creating private real estate funds for uh, high net worth investors, family offices, and smaller institutional investors. Um, you know, while on Wall Street, I just saw there was an absolute dearth in my mind of good offerings available um, to those types of investors. Um, you know, to me, there's, there's absolutely, there's three pillars I think you have to have when investing in private real estate. One is a property type with long-term demographic tailwinds at its back so you can ride through economic cycles. Number two is absolutely a long-standing proven operator in the space, and we can kind of dive into that a little more. And the third one, quite frankly, is a fee structure. And what I've been surprised by is how many, um, let's call it real estate offerings, um, that are out there that, quite frankly, break down pretty drastically in, in the fee structure department, meaning that investors are paying just way too much in fees um, commensurate to, in my opinion, the illiquidity risk they're taking when going into private real estate. So with that as a backdrop, the very first fund I created after leaving Wall Street was uh, back in 2010. It was a multifamily apartment strategy, which uh, a value-add strategy, which means essentially you know buying 10 to 20-year-old apartment buildings um, in selected markets, fixing them up, cleaning them up, uh, driving occupancy, stabilizing them, um, hopefully modestly increasing rents, and then selling them. Um, you know, that work, uh, quite frankly, sh uh, I guess put a really big light on a major problem that we have in this country, and that's the lack of affordable housing. Um, it really is at epidemic proportions in this country. Uh, if you think about it, for the last 35 years, wages just have not kept pace with to either buy or to rent homes. So with that as a backdrop, what I wanted to do five years ago was look for a property type that was, in my opinion, one of, if not the most, affordable forms of housing in a non-government subsidized fashion. And that work took me straight to manufactured housing communities prior to 1980s. Uh, those were called mobile home parks. Perfect, TK. And, and just to highlight that point, uh, uh, I think it was just last week the data came out that housing affordability, as measured by prices divided by incomes, uh, housing affordability has uh, risen above where we were before the 2008 financial crisis. So homes in America have basically never been less affordable. Just to underscore TK's point, uh, and then that that was a great that was great background, uh, great intro, TK. And um, of the three points that you mentioned, and and um, obviously affordability is a piece of it, but. Uh, of the first point of your three, the economic cycles and looking for something that performed well, regardless of the economic cycle. Um, when you you're you you're the first person uh, you're the party responsible for uh, tuning me into uh, manufactured housing, and it struck me just how predictable and reliable the cash flows and the rents of these properties are. Can you talk a little bit more about why manufactured housing is so? Um, uh, untethered or robust through economic cycles and how they performed in the, in the last couple of recessions. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really important for your listeners to understand that, you know, when, 
when you're going into real estate, and we'll call it you know, illiquid real estate, private real estate, um, it's illiquid. <laughs> you're not going to easily, quickly to be able to get out of, of that real estate per se. So if the market starts to turn, there's certain property types that we know are cyclical. And quite frankly, they just get killed in a downturn. Um, suburban office being one of them, uh, oftentimes retail or malls. And there's certain property types we know because of the in-place supply demand drivers that they're going to ride through either they're going to be you know, uh, recession resistant or economic cycle agnostic and manufactured housing communities have proven to be that um, certainly over the last you know 20 to, to 30 years so in my opinion when looking at commercial real estate there is no other property type with the supply demand drivers of we'll call it MHC manufactured housing communities we'll call it MHC for short um, and it, it, if, if you're kind of, you know, in, in business school and looking for an industry that you want to be in or, or the, 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 I guess, criteria you want to have around your industry that, that makes it a good investment, um, you know, this industry has almost a perfect moat around it. One is the industry, the, the MHC space, is highly fragmented in its ownership, meaning it's still 85% owned by, you know, a colloquial term, ma and pop owners or, uh, you know, very, very small companies that may own one or two or, or, or three communities. Um, it's the property type is still becoming institutionalized. So there's, there's a lot of value can still be had on the buy side um, when buying uh, real estate in, in the private market in a fragmented industry. Um, you know, the second one usually goes supply demand. I'll go demand first. We just touched upon affordable housing and the lack of it in this country. Demand is strong across all age cohorts, uh, cohorts whether it's from millennials who've outgrown their apartment or can't afford a home, uh, whether it's boomers who want a second home or are downsizing. This has just become a extremely attractive property type, which then leads to very nice, consistent cash flows as an investor. Um, but what struck me the most and baffled me for a little while is the supply side. There has been only um, 10 new MHC developments in this country over the last 20 years. Wow. And, and that doesn't make any sense, right? We live in the most capitalist country in the world. If demand is off the charts, how can we only have 10 new developments? And really simply, uh, there's three reasons why, and this is why I think this industry has kind of the perfect moat around it. Um, on the supply side, there's three reasons why you haven't seen any new development and you won't, quite frankly. In my opinion, you won't. Number one is people still have a stigma of what a mobile home park is um, or what the residents may be like or how it looks visually. So they call that nimbyism, not in my backyard. It's almost impossible to get a new MHC development zoned. Um, number two is if you're a city planner, and I had a brief stint with the New York City Economic Development Corporation where my job was to walk around the five boroughs and try to find, you know, dilapidated pieces of property the city could turn into new affordable housing developments. So I say that if you're a city planner trying to solve your affordable housing need, you need a pit, pretty big piece of land, quite frankly, to build a new MHC community where you know, I could go on a five acre piece of land and I can go vertical with 450 apartment units. I would need, you know, 
30, 40, 50 acres uh, to do a, a subdivision with the same you know, kind of numbers. So the density just isn't there. Um, so again, city planners won't approve it. They're not looking for it. The third thing is developers are always looking for property types that are in demand that they can build. And so you see demand at the charts. If you're a developer, this looks great, but you go and run the numbers and the numbers don't work because you've got to put in all the same infrastructure that you would to build a regular housing subdivision, stick-built homes, but you're selling homes at an absolute fraction of the cost when we're talking about affordable, when we're talking about manufactured housing or, or modular, sorry, manufactured homes. Um, the numbers just don't make sense. So the, the developer would then go to the city and ask for tax incentives to build it for the city, but we already said the city's not looking to build this because it's not an efficient way to solve their problem. So for those three reasons, you're not, you're not gonna, you haven't seen any new supply, you're not gonna see any new supply, you've got demand off the charts, and you're still in a fragmented industry which allows for inefficient pricing. There's no other property type in commercial real estate that has that, um, let alone be it in a re residential property type. So TK, in, in terms of the geographics and location, it, are we more likely to find these modular home communities, you know, away from the major urban centers? I mean, smaller communities, maybe, you know, I don't know, it's, it's some, you know, 10 to 20 miles away from a major city where land is cheaper and, it's, and, it, and it makes more sense to have yeah, these communities? So Sorry, Mark. Yeah, absolutely. So there, there's two things in that. One, I, I should be clear, we talked about new developments. Um, you know, the, I, I don't work in the development side of, of this property type. Um, I work in essentially, you know, already existing communities and how we can um, buy them, aggregate them, improve them, so on and so forth. So if you think there's really been no new development the last 20 years, then yes, going back 20 years ago, a lot of these communities, you know, going back 20, 30, 40 years ago, a lot of these communities were built on the outskirts of town or in more rural areas. Um, obviously, as we've grown as a nation and we've had urban sprawl, um, a lot of these properties are no longer <laughs> out in the outskirts. Um, so it's, it's pretty commonplace, actually, to find a number of these communities in fairly dense areas. You know, in San Diego, you drive up the coast, from downtown San Diego to you know, half an hour north, and there's three communities right on the ocean. Um, right, and to uh, and just to interject with that, uh, TK and Mark, um, Sun Communities, one of the well-run, one of the three uh, public MHC uh, uh, REITs, just built a new development in Chula Vista that's on the water, and uh, I was just curious to see if they had any mobile homes that were rentable, and they're 100. They're already at 100 percent occupancy. So, um, uh, in, in, yep. you know, uh, fully booked, just built, right on the water. And anyone who lives in San Diego knows Chula Vista is, um, it's, it's, it's right in the heart of uh, San Diego. So just, uh, yeah. And it looked like a nice facility, by the way, which is another, I want to hit two, two points, if you don't mind, TK. Yeah, please. Uh, so, so one of the points is to make this a little more tangible. You talked about the economics and from a builder's perspective, whether they're going to build new single-family homes or um, or uh, MHC type product. Um, mm -hmm. Let's get into the economics a little bit. So, um, when you for for a new uh, mobile home park or manufactured home park, how many homes are in a typical park? How much are the homes typically? Do the good operators, uh, who owns the homes? Is it the tenants? Is it the park operator? And uh, what's the average rents like in those parks? Let's, let's get into the numbers a little bit. Yeah, cool. That's, uh, you've done your homework. Some good questions in there. Um, 
So let's let's talk about kind of first of all what is the business model, if you will. And, and there's kind of two different ways of, of thinking. Well, first of all, let's look at the property type. There's two different ways the property type breaks down. You have what's called all ages communities, which just sounds you know it is what it sounds like, and you have let's call it seniors communities or age restricted communities, which are typically 55 plus. Um, within that, you then have models where a community might own all of the homes in its park, for lack of a better word, or its community, and just rent them out to the resident, the tenant, kind of like a traditional multifamily apartment rental. Um, the other model, which I think is far superior, is where the community does not own the homes. The residents of the community, they own their homes. The community is responsible for you know the common amenities, clubhouse, pool, landscaping, signage, that kind of stuff. And the resident of the home pays what's called pad rent. So their house sits on a piece of you know, on a concrete slab essentially, and they pay to they pay the community owner to rent that pad of land. From a number standpoint, that pad of land, you know, the national average is right around four hundred dollars, um, you know, per month. So not a, not an expensive endeavor for a lot of people, which is why the affordable aspect makes sense. But it also varies, you know, where you are in the country, what markets you're in, so on and so forth. The typical more expensive markets for rental properties are more expensive for for, for, for mobile homes a, a, as well. Um, the other question I think you asked, I think you asked, did you ask about the the the, the actual price? to buy one of these homes? Or yes. Did I miss? Okay. Yes, perfect. Um, okay. So the homes really, again, kind of vary as well. Uh, it's, you know, it's kind of like a car. Uh, you know, <laughs> what options do you want on it? What model do you want on it? So on and so forth. So in, in this circumstance, we're talking about what may be commonly known as a single wide or a double wide. It used to be called mobile homes, but now they're all called manufactured homes. Um, and those are range in square footage from, you know, kind of 750 square feet upwards to 2,000 uh, square feet. Um, the typical price is kind of anywhere around, you know, $40,000 up to $150,000, fully loaded, brand new, and, and, and the whole bit. Um, that's, that, that's, that's kind of where, where they work out price-wise. No, that's perfect. And um, I, I imagine the, uh, whether the park owns the home or the... Um, the, the tenant owns the home makes a big difference in the kinds of tenants you attract and how they treat their homes? Yeah, so from, you know, now you're getting into the kind of the investment thesis standpoint of, you know, of operating the business. Um, you know, having your resident, if you're the community owner, having the resident own the home is, is a a drastic difference. One is there's pride of ownership because they own their home. Um, number two is, you know, the resident is responsible for the upkeep and maintenance of that home, not the community. So your capital expenditures as an operator are usually minimal compared to other types of, of operating properties. Um, you tend to have a higher credit quality tenant when they own their home. And they also tend to stay longer, a little less transient. Although I will tell you the national average, um, whether it's a owned home or a rented home, uh, people stay an average of 13 years in wow. their manufactured home community, which is unheard of in residential real estate. And it's pretty much unheard of in any other kind of real estate, um, you know, save, save a few, which means you have nice consistency of, of cash flow, which is why, you know, if you look at, I think the public REITs, why their volatility has been so low relative to other real estate or other property types, yet still able to produce, you know, significant, what I would call value add returns. 
13, 13 years is incredible. And for perspective for our listeners, the average American who takes out a 30-year fixed rate mortgage to buy a single family home in America stays in their home for only five years. So the 13 years is more than double what the average homeowner's uh, tenure in their home is. So that's that's really an incredible figure. Um, and then, um, okay, that, that's really helpful information. And the last piece of the puzzle, TK, so you mentioned that an average of 400 per month for pad rent. Obviously, that can be a little higher for Chula Vista or one of those nice coastal communities uh, you mentioned, uh, one of the other nice coastal communities in California. But using the 400 average pad month rent, um, about how many uh, home sites will there usually be in a park? Ah, thank you. I missed that one. Yeah, so that, that varies as well, um, quite frankly. Every state and county kind of has different zoning around it or has. It's been kind of a mishmash uh, around the country for years. Um, you know, where I think the, 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 the typical average good place to play as an investor where you're safe is kind of two things. Uh, I would say that those, those communities tend to have anywhere from um, you know, 100 to 200, um, you know, pads available to put homes on. Um, and then the, you know, the, the, the second um, part of that is that these communities are also ranked on a star quality, right? So um, think about a five-star quality, obviously five being the highest, one being the lowest. Um, I think, you know, the sweet spot, quite frankly, is really to focus on communities that were on a two-and-a-half to three-and-a-half star quality scale. Um, you know, they're in need of some capital improvements, some love, if you will. Um, and there is usually the ability to still increase occupancy in those in those communities. So still, it's really extremely stable cash flows, but the the ability to drive the property up in value through a more efficient operating model. So um, uh, you, you, this, this is a great conversation. Hopefully, our listeners are enjoying it. Um, you, you keep prompting me with new questions, TK. Uh, but um, but, but uh, one, one point I want to sort of underline and, and bold before I ask this question is, um, as you're going through the economics, it, it really helps make sense. Uh, helps it make sense why. Um, so we have predictable cash flows. Uh, a ten, uh, the, the construction of new supply is almost non-existent. So as you said, a really nice moat around this space, you would think that this would be a sweet spot for um, Blackstone, KKR, the big private equity players, right? But when you start to think about $400 a month pad rent for 100 or 200 sites and a park maybe generating uh, half a million to a million a year in rent, it, it, helps you, it helps it make sense why there's so many moms and pops in the space and not the Goliaths of private equity, right? Yeah, I mean, so, so yes, but I would say it's also, that's changing fairly rapidly over the last, mm. um, call it three to five years. You do have now some of the largest private equity players in the space. You know, the Carlisle Group is heavy in the space, um, has been for probably about eight years or so now. Groups like Apollo are in the space. Um, you know, a quick story on Blackstone. Um, I, I actually, I, I know Blackstone entered the space in 2017. They bought a 14-asset portfolio, primarily uh, domiciled in the state of Arizona, um, primarily all age-restricted assets. Um, but Blackstone decided they wanted to get in the space, did that in two, 2017 with that portfolio transaction. And actually, I'm very familiar with that transaction because I know the operator that they, they bought the portfolio off of. And, and since 2017, Blackstone's been a big player in the space. 
Wow. Um, yeah. And but you know, there also lies the opportunity. Um, you know, pension funds, uh, big insurance companies. You know, companies that are trying to manage their liabilities. In the past, they typically did that by investing in fixed income. But you know, we've been in this low fixed income market now for really 25 years. Um, these types of investors have had to find other places to gain, you know, stable cash flows in, in a fixed uh, income kind of, you know, I guess, characteristic to them, if, if, if you will. And MHC, because it's so stable, it certainly offers that as a, a high yield uh, alternative to, um, you know, what, what fixed income used to be. So with that, there's opportunity. You see the bigger institutional investors and the bigger private equity guys um, getting into the space. In the past, I mean, the opportunity is they would love to buy portfolio of assets. You know, Blackstone's raising $2 billion a year. Don't quote me on that. But, and they're trying to put <laughs> it to work. Um, it, it's, it's, it's hard to buy 5 and $10 million properties, enough of them to really put that to work if you want to be in the space. So when these guys enter something, they want to do it meaningfully. Um, they tend to look for portfolios that they can buy. So there lies the opportunity. If you can... Um, as an investor, go and be buying these properties, improving them, fixing them up, have them be in institutional markets, turn them into institutional quality assets. When you go sell that, let's say you got a portfolio of, I don't know, 5, 10, 15, 20 properties, um, the, the big institutional investors will pay you a premium. You know, it's kind of like the opposite of going to Costco. You go to Costco, you get a bulk discount. In this case, if you got a you know a bulk portfolio uh, of assets to sell, they'll pay you a premium versus you know selling each asset one at a time. So it's a long-winded answer to your question. Institutional investors it's a great are, are, are are getting heavier and heavier um, into the space, and, and it, you've seen that pick up pretty dramatically, in my opinion, in the last three years. So, and, and based on that, based on those details combined with your enthusiasm and the response, um, may, maybe I'm way off base, but I would say for the private operators and the space you're in, TK, that a, a, a good chunk of the opportunity is, is being the aggregator and having those relationships and facilitating the institutions like pension plans to invest in the space. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, honestly, if you build a portfolio, the institutional investors will find you. <laughs> That's been my experience. Um, they're, they're watching, looking, and waiting. Um, I've had a number of conversations over the past couple of years with you know, some of the largest um, private equity players in space, some of the largest uh, in, uh, institu institutional investors in space, you know, pension funds, um, as well as insurance companies, um, and quite frankly, most of them kind of came, came knocking on, on my door or, or, the, or my client's door, that, whom, whom I work with in the space. Um, and, and I think also there, there is just a, a greater opportunity um, in the private market space. One, these assets aren't correlated to the public market, which is great, um, investors like that. And number two is um, there is still value relative to the public markets in the private market space of MHC, and especially if you can get in the business of basically aggregating um, these properties to sell them to an institutional investor. No, that, that's perfect, TK. Uh, one follow-on question to that um, on the private uh, aspect of the, of the market is, if, you, if you're one of our listeners who's accredited and, and can invest uh, in private equity vehicles, uh, illiquid investments, limited partnerships, uh, what advice would you have for them in terms of trying to find the right? Let, let's say they've heard, they, they listen to this podcast and they say, MHC sounds like a great space for me. What advice would you give them to find the right operator, the right private operator? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, I would say there's two things. As you mentioned at the top of the call, you know, we're governed by the SEC and FINRA on what we can say, and, and it's smart that they do that, you know, want to protect investors. Um, but obviously, if anyone wants to contact you guys directly, then we can have conversations with them and, and certainly point them in, in the right directions and, and see if we can be helpful in that regard. Um, you know, for a, let's call it an accredited, it, honestly, whether you're an investor with $500 to spend, or your institutional investor spending $200 million, there is, a, there is a way in which you can gain exposure into this property type. Um, and we can, we can probably help in that regard. But the two main ways for, I'll call it high net worth investors or institutional, sorry, accredited investors, are really you can go into a private real estate fund. Um, or, and then the fund can be you know, property specific, all they do is buy mobile home parks, or the fund could be diversified. They buy a bunch of different property types to, to round out the fund. I don't like the diversified model in funds. I think you can build your own diversification, but neither here nor there, I digress. Um, the second way is if um, you can actually go direct into deals. So you might, there might be a mobile home park, you know, operator in, in your town, county, community, whatever. Um, you can talk to them directly, and oftentimes they will have a, a program where you as an investor can go direct into, you know, deal by deal specific. Having said all that, to really get to your question, um, I think there's, you know, three strategies. Um, one is, you know, there's the buy, the fix it up, and the hold strategy. The other one is the buy, the fix it up, and the sell strategy. The other one is the buy, fix, aggregate a bunch of these things, and sell. Mm. Um, but your real question was, how do you choose an operator? And, and I think it really, I mean, I'll give you my high-level criteria, quite frankly. And Because you went through, well, and you went through this process, right? So I, I love the yeah. way, and, and I sh uh, in your intro, TK, I, I don't even know if you mentioned it, but you're a CFA charter holder. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I did. That. I, sorry. Yeah, when you asked why am I qualified, actually, I, I remembered I had a, had a kind of scripted answer to that, and I went off off the reservation <laughs> really quickly. <laughs> so, so yeah, you're... I, I did. I did earn my my CFA, my Charter Financial Holder, like you have, Stephen, um, and then went to uh, graduate school, earned my MBA in finance, and then went to uh, Wall Street and worked in real estate investment banking from there. Yeah, no, and, and, and as a CFA charter holder, and, and by the way, um, it skipped it from the intro, that's how I met TK in the CFA San Diego uh, Society. Um, but as a CFA charter holder, TK, I, I, I love the way that you identified manufactured housing as step one. And then, so the question I asked you is not just academic. I mean, you, you had to go through this process with, with all the credentials and experience you have. As a CFA charter holder in real estate, you said, okay, I know MHC is a great space um, and, and great timing, TK, because it's only continued to outperform. But then the second step you said was, okay, now I have to find someone uh, uh, mm -hmm. to partner with to make these investments. So it's not just academic. You actually went through this exercise. So just I just wanted to add that as a setup before you uh, uh, answer this question without mentioning any specifically specific names, of course. And by the way, our chief compliance officer, Mark Cooperstock, is on the call. And so far, we haven't had any you know, buzzer alerts or warnings. So <laughs> it sounds like we're doing OK, right, Mark? I haven't, I haven't had to hit the, snoo, uh, the sneeze button once. So yeah, we're good. <laughs> OK, perfect. So, so TK, so maybe yeah. even, you know, and it can stop before the, yeah, the, the partner you chose, but, but yeah, so it's sort of like, what did you sketch down and what you were looking for? Yeah, and part of it comes out of, you know, um, the investor base that I'm going to, to uh, you know, finance the deals that I'm working on. So this 
might not be what everyone's criteria should be, but I'll give you kind of high level for me. And I think if Perfect. you're going into a fund, I would actually use this. So, you know, first and foremost, I'm a real estate investment banker, so I'm a real estate finance guy. I own some real estate, but I'm not really an institutional real estate operator. So, you know, when I decided that I wanted to get heavy into the manufactured housing community space, and I wanted to, yeah, I'll stop there. Um, my, my three criteria for working with an operator, finding an operator, um, are this. One is the operator needs, needs to have at least 10 years experience in that property type or its founding partners, its key management staff have been in, in that property type for 10 years, maybe at other companies. Um, number two is I want them to have gone full cycle on a billion dollars worth of real estate in that property type. And what that means is they've bought a billion dollars worth of you know, MHC, they've operated a billion dollars worth of MHC, and they've sold a billion dollars worth of MHC. That means they've gone full cycle. And the third one I think is extremely important. Um, I look for operators that have done uh, institutional joint ventures, which means they've worked with institutional investors. So, you know, a CalPERS, a CalSTR, a State of Michigan, Texas, you know, Texas Pension Fund, or, you know, a, a Blackstone, a Carlisle, you know, guys, people of that ilk. Um, the reason for that is really twofold. One, I know is that that operator, if they've worked with those institutional investors, that they've been vetted eight ways a Sunday, personally, professionally, track record, financially, you name it. Um, so I can take some confidence from that. Number two of that equation is that I know they have the internal infrastructure, typically accounting staff, to report adequately. Um, my clients demand <laughs> um, reporting, and you know, for those listening who have been in private investments before, it can be really, really frustrating when you're not getting the kind of reporting that you would like to get to be able to track your investments. So that's my, my, my high-level um, criteria on choosing an operator. Ten years in this space, a billion dollars worth full cycle, and a history of working with institutional investors. That, that's a great checklist, TK. Um, that, that, you know, that's, that's a wonderful checklist and very helpful. Uh, all right, uh, Mark. Can I, can I add one thing to that? One yeah. One thing I think is really important. You know, th there's two things when people hear the word either mobile home park or manufactured housing community, they instantly have a bias that comes up to them. And what I would, what I try to get people to do is forget about that bias, forget about pictures. I can show you pretty pictures of the stuff that we actually buy. Um, but let's look at the numbers. And if you just look at this from a blind you know, taste test, if you will, there's really not another property type with, with, with the supply demand or drivers of this, uh, of, of MHC. And, you know, proof of that point was a question you asked earlier about institutional investors in the space. Um, you know, everyone here knows Warren Buffett, probably one of the, <laughs> the greatest investors we've ever known, certainly in, in our lifetime. Um, he has been big time in the space for a while. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway owns the largest manufacturer of manufactured homes, a company called Clayton Homes. He also owns the largest financier of people looking to buy, um, looking to finance their manufactured home purchases. That question is called, 20, uh, company's called 21st uh, Mortgage. I want to make sure we touch upon before we uh, wrap this up, and it's been great, TK. I really appreciate um, uh, this entire conversation, but also uh, your focus on the different ways investors can access this space from directly to public REITs to privately. Uh, I thought that was great. It's definitely the era of the uh, individual investor. Uh, mm -hmm. At least it has been uh, for, the, for the last year or so. So um, I, I want to I, I end on uh, one point about some of the public equity REITs. But before we get there, you touched on Warren Buffett, and it's a good segue. Uh, uh, Jamie Oliver, 
on HBO uh, did a, um, an episode uh, just really coming after the industry uh, because of its uh, historical practice of, of raising rents around 4% a year on tenants of the, of the um, manufactured housing communities. And um, I, I want to toss you this question. I want to add my two cents as well. And it's something I've thought about. But um, the housing is so unaffordable in America that manufactured housing seems like a great option. And it's kind of unfathomable that the government's response to the affordability crisis is to maintain or enhance nimbyism, right? So to not allow builders to build new housing, which would bring the prices down, um, you've heard different politicians, as echoed on the Jamie Oliver show, uh, to get upset about real estate landlords raising rents slightly ahead of inflation. The right thing to do from a policymaker standpoint would be to encourage more home building, right? Um, one of the reasons that mobile home operators generally and landlords, anyone who's lived in New York City or Los Angeles uh, uh, knows, or even San Francisco with rent control, knows rents are expensive and they go up over time, um, it would seem much more effective to encourage more building rather than yell at uh, manufactured housing communities for raising rents 4% a year. Um, but that might be anyone who's read those articles or, or seen that Jamie Oliver show might have in their minds sort of, oh, is this, is this, is this a bad space where landlords raise rents on tenants who can't afford it? What, what's your two cents on that debate? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple things in there. I mean, first of all, I, I saw the Jamie Oliver, I think, think that was almost two or three years ago now when that first came out and um, you know, had to talk to certain people about it back then. Um, and, and there's no doubt there are some operators in this space that are, let's call them unsavory or unethical, and they did engage in predatory practices on their residents. And, um, you know, those rent increases were not 4%. They were more like 20, 30, 40%. And quite frankly, they could get away with it because the, the, the total cost on average in this country to live in an MHC is about $560, okay? Ooh. And when you look at the, the average cost for a multifamily rental, total all-in cost is about $1,100. So, you, you know, almost like 50% of, of the cost. And you look at single-family homes, the average cost is about $1,200 all-in. So it's so affordable that these operators knew they, they could raise rent and demand to be there. Now, does it make it right? Absolutely not. But it goes back to your other question, but how do you choose an operator? And in choosing mm. an operator to work with, I think you really need to do your due diligence. What is their track record? You know, how did they improve the community? Did they just jack up rents? Um, did residents stay? What's the occupancy? What's the turn? Over. There's a lot of things in, in, in there to kind of unpack. Um, you know, I will tell you that uh, the, the 4%, you know, rental increases, anywhere kind of between 3 and 5 is pretty standard in, in the industry, in, in the overall residential rental industry, whether it's single-family homes, whether it's multi-family sure. apartment buildings, right? Um, and and so for mobile home parks to, to move 4% on a $400 base is, is really not, not a big move. Um, so, you know, the, the, the operators that I've worked with in this space, they do not engage in predatory practices whatsoever. Um, and you can find it out pretty quickly by talking to them, understanding their culture, looking at their track record. And I will tell you that institutional investors will also not invest with or partner with operators that um, engage in that kind of activity. Good and point. Then the other point you raised is, you know, the government, uh, 
<laughs> I'm not gonna get political, um, but the government is, I think, is trying to do a, a decent job in in, in the manufacturing. Sorry, in the affordable housing space. Um, for mm. example, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, they are the largest and really significant lenders in the space. And with that, they're able to put, you know, certain criteria around their lending that, you know, makes the operator or uh, conform, if you will, or operate the properties within certain guidelines. The last part you said is there's no doubt we need, um, you know, a lot of new affordable housing in this country, and we certainly need to make sure that whatever affordable housing we currently have, that we maintain. It doesn't come offline. So it's kind of fighting on on two fronts. Um, but that's that's a kind of coordinated policy between government and, and the private sector. But um, you know, where, where there's demand, um, typically supply will will fill in afterwards. And I think we are seeing that. You're just not going to see it in the typical manufactured housing community for the reasons that I outlined earlier. So uh, if any of our listeners are connected to the Jamie Oliver show or anyone in media, uh, perhaps an episode about nimbyism and how hard it is to build new homes would be much more uh, persuasive and appropriate than uh, complaining about 4% uh, rental increases in manufactured housing. I I think that would be fair, huh, TK? Well, yeah, I, mean, I think, yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, but also, you know, it really comes down to the operator. Is, is the operator providing value that the residents see and that they're happy to pay a 3 or 4% mm. increase in rent? I mean, you know, wherever we go, if you're renting, you're going to expect your rent to go up pretty consistently year over year or maybe every other year, right, to, to, to stave off inflation, if you will. So the operator's in business to make a profit. We get it. Um, but yeah, well, as you were- the operator provide? Well, as you were talking, TK, uh, when my wife and I moved to our uh, apartment in a brownstone in Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn, in 2010, uh, our rent was 1,800 bucks, and when we left the city in 2016, it was uh, 4,000. So we had a, we had about 12 percent a year rent increases. So uh, I, I guess it shouldn't be shocking that landlords want to raise prices. And to your point, they could get away with it because my wife and I could walk to the rock shop to see incredible bands play uh, like yours. <laughs> going back, you're going back in the deep archives and my music. <laughs> no, that, that's, really, that's really helpful context, TK. And then um, I'm going to ask our, our partner in Las Vegas if he has any questions. Or, and if TK, if there's any points we didn't hit you want to touch on. And then when you guys are done... I'm just going to throw some numbers to um, once again highlight how attractive we think the MHC space is, uh, and all credit to TK for t- tuning us into it. Mark, any questions from Vegas? Yeah, uh, n- no questions. Just a comment and to, to piggyback on what you just said about your rent increases in Brooklyn. I mean, look, you know, all across this country, we're experiencing you know crazy real estate explosions continue to happen. And I think what's really interesting uh, about the conversation today, and, and by the way, thank you, TK, for all this all this great insight. Uh, is that you know if we look at it from and purely from an investor's point of view, you know we're talking about you know a diversified space within a diversification space within real estate, and and it's something that not a lot of people are aware of, or if they're aware of it, they knew just enough to get into trouble. Um, so I, I think this has been really enlightening, um, and uh, you know part of the discussion that we didn't really have, but but goes along in general with with. with with something that requires to be someone to be a qualified investor is you have to look at liquidity as well, right? Um, 
you know, and you talked about TK, the options that people have, where they can go do it on their own, but you know, there's liquidity options, there's liquidity issues. Um, and that's part of a, a larger discussion that, you know, we're happy to have offline uh, with our clients and in conjunction with, with or without TK. So uh, no, no other point, questions, Mark. but, 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 uh, but great discussion, gentlemen. Steve, I'll throw it back to you for any uh, uh, final comments, and then we'll take them out. Well, th those are excellent points. Uh, TK, is there anything you want to say to our listeners that we didn't touch upon for M the MHC space? Um, I just kind of want to kind of just really quickly piggyback on what Mark said right there. I mean, it's it's perfect. You know, real estate, especially in private real estate, it's illiquid, right? And one of the big mistakes that I've seen not only institutional investors make, um, but certainly individuals make, is not doing their homework on how does this property type perform during a recession. And that's what really matters, right? It's the downdrafts in, in, our, in our assets that hurt us the most. It takes a lot to make that up. And so I would caution anybody when looking at, um, you know, illiquid real estate is really look at how this property type performs in a downturn. Because, again, there's certain property types we just know that get killed. And there's certain types that do very, very well. Um, you know, second point is on the fund side, I think we're all, also I know a lot of financial advisors, individual investors, institutional investors have gotten hurt in the past is by buying into diversified funds. And there's a problem with that. If you're in a diversified fund, you don't necessarily know what that fund manager is buying. They might put you into, you know, cyclical property types that don't do well that you necessarily wouldn't want to be in. I think you can build your own diversified real estate portfolio by you individually choosing what property types you want to be in um, through manager selection. And that's where, you know, working with, with, with you, Stephen, or Mark, you guys in tandem, um, where I think you can add a lot of value to clients. I mean, I think people realize real estate's a great place to be, but unfortunately, um, a lot of people don't realize really how to access it smartly and how to do their due, how to do their due diligence. Uh, excellent points, TK. And, well, and, and to your point, and that takes us to where we started, which is if you look at real estate as represented by the public equity REITs, if you just said, oh, I'm going to buy a real estate index fund, your cell towers and your data centers got weighed down by some strip mall properties that have had zero returns for 15 years. So you actually didn't add value. And in real estate, there's a thing called the asymmetric beta puzzle which is uh, overall as a category REITs have a beta of 0.9 which slightly less risk than the market but not by much but they've tended to perform worse in downturns and not quite as well in upturns as a category but when you double click and zoom in on the segments of real estate like you're saying TK uh, manufactured housing uh, has significantly outperformed with way less risk, uh, cell towers, data centers, public storage, um, and we'll touch on some of these topics in future podcasts, but to TK's point, real estate uh, is uh, a very broad category. And I, I, again, I really love the process that uh, TK, T, TK France CFA charter holder went through of, no, and, and it's the big decisions in investing that can really make a difference. So uh, the emerging market equity managers who have tended to beat their benchmark often owned, company, owned companies in developed markets that had big presences in emerging markets, right? In real estate, kind of, kind of taking a more nuanced view and picking your property types, uh, TK is just such a, 
it's, it's such an excellent point. Um, so hopefully we've, uh, uh, and to be fair, uh, right, TK, I've been a CFA charter holder since 2006 in manufactured housing, and I worked for a $2 billion foundation. I've seen affordable housing projects. I've seen, uh, uh, I've seen office. I've seen everything probably but manufactured housing, and, and I've been in the industry for 20 years now. Uh, so I, I really appreciate you putting it on our radar. Uh, hopefully, both for our investors and our listeners, we've done it. And uh, just just to highlight again, uh, to take us out before Mark, the voice, Cooperstock, takes us out with his <laughs> outro, um, and, and to, to leave people on an exciting note. Um, you know, people often remember the start and the end of a presentation. But um, again, this this is... Uh, while I think equity lifestyle is, is a, good, a, well, uh, a well-run REIT, which um, uh, TK talked to me about, I do think it's um, this example is more that it's emblematic of the space. Uh, equity lifestyle, ticker ELS, uh, is the manufactured housing real estate investment trust founded by Sam Zell. Since IPO on February 25th, 1993, ELS returns 16.7% per year compared to the S&P 500's 10.5%. Even more impressively, while the S&P 500 posted five negative years since 1993, ELS only had three. Further, the drawdowns for ELS were far shallower. While the S&P fell by 37% in 2008, ELS returned negative 12% that year. Um, EL, if you split adjust ELS's price, they IPO'd for about a dollar. Today, they're priced for around $80. So the strategy today that's very in vogue, especially with individual investors, we've all heard of hodling in Bitcoin. The in vogue strategy is find something you believe in, hold it for the long term, and let the capital compound. ELS specifically, manufactured housing more generally, to me, to my CFA charter holder eyes, to TKs, is certainly a candidate that deserves attention, especially since it's a little under the radar from investors. Uh, so that's just one quick case study uh, uh, to uh, highlight again how attractive the space is. With that, TK, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey guys, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's great to talk about uh, manufactured housing communities and to come visit you guys in your brand new office. Congratulations. Thank you, TK. And Mark, yeah, if you want to take us home. You got it, Steve. And, and TK, I think we'll look forward to having you back uh, maybe you know later on in the year with some follow-up because I know we're going to generate some interest on this topic and uh, we'd love to have you back to answer those questions. You guys both got me on speed dial. I'm around. Okay, great. Uh, remember, the opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the hosts and their guests. Nothing discussed today should be considered investment advice. Please consult with your own financial advisor and tax advisor whenever considering any investment. If you have questions and you're one of our clients, please email us with the term podcast in the subject line. For more information about this podcast, the hosts, the guests, and the firm, please visit us at www.mk-am.com or email us at info at mk-am.com. Thank you for joining us and look for our next podcast release in the near future.